0: You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for a really special episode. We're going to talk about school finance, which sounds like kind of a dry topic, but it's going to be fascinating um, because I've got some great panelists here today. My name is Devin Lincoln, and I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. Um, I co-chair the group, the firm's Facilities and Business Practice Group, which means I spend time thinking about money. But one of the things that's interesting about our firm is every practice area involves, you have to understand school finance to understand um, how schools are run, how schools do their business, and how that affects policy. So this is a really wide-ranging topic. And I think it's, most of all, I think it's of interest to all Californians. Um, so my, my panelists today, I'm really excited to introduce Maddie Scott and Karen Resendez, who are two of the most eminent women I know, and terrific um, parts
1: of our firm. So, Maddie, could you introduce yourself? Well, I uh, began practicing school law in um, 1978, six months before Prop 13 was passed. So, I have sort of seen it all. And I have I have worked in most of the areas of school law, special ed um, environmental law, um, some construction, labor, lots of labor, charter schools, and uh, financial issues. So, I've um, seen it, all the, you know, the bad and the ugly and the good.
2: Great. And I'm Karen Resendiz, I'm the managing partner of Lozano-Smith, and I had the great opportunity to be heading into high school in Prop 98, 98, 13? Proposition 13 was passed. I wish it was 1998. (laughs) Um, But at the time I was heading into high school, what I knew about Prop 13 was that the freshman football team went away. A lot of the programs that I was looking forward to in high school started disappearing about that time. So I'm excited to hear um, Maddie's description of, of Prop 13 and from her perspective as a brand new attorney at the time.
0: Yeah. So one of the things Maddie and I were talking about before this podcast is um, how you really need to understand the history of California school finance in order to understand the present moment we're in. So we've already heard terms like Prop 98, Prop 13. Um, you may think that's ancient history, but I think if you once you listen to everything we, Maddie has to share with us today and Karen talking about being in the trenches, you're going to begin to understand why these these issues are you, the history is so important to to the present moment. Um, And one of the things that I think is fascinating about school finance is the effort to try to achieve parity and equality, but at the same time serve the most needy kids, and how those things are often in tension throughout the history. So, Manny, I think the history is important, but can you explain to us why the history is important?
1: Uh, Well, because for the last 168 years or so, since the dawn of the California Constitution, the legislature and the people and the courts have all been tinkering with schools and particularly with school finance. And the statutes that uh, govern the way money is allocated that have come out of this become more and more and more convoluted. They're generally built on the previous statutes rather than starting with a clean slate. So so it's like an archaeological dig. Mm -hmm. But understanding how they fit together kinda can calm you down a little bit when you get mad about how it works. Great. So start at the beginning for us. Start in 1849.
0: What does the California Constitution tell us about cut school finance in schools
1: in Well, it starts out by uh, establishing a statewide, quote, system of common schools. And that phrase is what the courts have construed as creating a uh, fundamental right to education in California, which became important when the Serrano case came along. Um, the, uh, and the Constitution has always given the legislature plenary power over school districts. Uh, they, they run the show, um, although uh, in a minute I'll say how that's been sort of tinkered with back and forth. In 1851, the first school act was nine pages long. We now have an ed code that's two dozen fat, heavy volumes. The big brick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, gone, it's already gone from bad to worse. Um, and you mentioned the, the, uh, the effort to equalize, um, the, the legislature really started trying to attempt to equalize school funding. There'd always been the ability to tax to, for schools, and it was generally property taxation that supported schools after the very first, uh, after they got themselves settled down, um. And in 1931, the legislature started making real attempts to equalize school funding by establishing maximum property tax limits for each district. But they gave the the voters in the school districts the ability to override the limits. And so by 1968, you had 98% of California school districts taxing at or above their statutory limit. And property values varied so widely at that point that you had Beverly Hills Unified, which had an assessed valuation of $50,000 a pupil, and then just down the freeway, uh, Baldwin Park, with an assessed valuation of $4,000 per pupil. So I want to pause for a second
0: and talk about the effort to equalize what what is what's the idea behind equalizing funding for schools?
1: Well, uh, the idea is that it, it costs money to educate kids. If you can hire good teachers, if you can pay them better, um, if you can have smaller class sizes, if you can have good facilities, all of those things contribute to learning. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's been shown statistically that that the you know the fewer the less money uh, the. For the, school, the student performance. So
0: what you just said is between the 1930s and the late 60s, those efforts essentially didn't yeah. get us to, to equal funding yeah, in no they, way. Yeah,
1: they tried various ways and it mm-hmm. didn't work. So then what happened in
0: 1968? We've all heard of this case, Serrano v. Priest, which right. is the grandfather of... of
1: school funding cases, yes. tell us about that case. Well, little Johnny Serrano, who is probably a grandfather himself now, <laughs> um, was a student in LA Unified, and <clears throat> he sued Ivy Baker Priest, who was at the time the state treasurer. Uh, and the argument was that disparities in st- local school funding were a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the state constitution. <laughs> um, and the California Supreme Court agreed with Johnny, they said that substantial disparities in educational opportunities, opportunity that resulted from disparities in local wealth, indeed violated the equal protection guarantee. That was Serrano v. Priest, the first Serrano. They call it Serrano One, decided in 1971. And that's still the law of the state. That's still the law of the mm-hmm. state, absolutely. But mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> but but it's honored more in the breach than the observance, right? Right. Okay. So then, how did the legislature respond to Serrano One? So the legislature goes right to work, and in 1972, they produced two bills that interlocked, SB 90 and AB 1267. And what they did was they replaced that maximum tax with revenue limits. I'm sure everybody re- remembers revenue limits.
0: Well, I think for most for lay people, revenue limits isn't a is not a common term. So what does a revenue limit
1: mean? Well, a revenue limit was the uh, amount of revenue that you uh were entitled to every year um, per pupil, and it was multiplied by the number of pupils in your district. The first revenue limits were uh, determined by each district's seventy two seventy three state and local income which had been coming all from from maximum the maximum tax system.
0: So I have a question by about that. Does that mean that the inequality um, that existed before nineteen sixty eight was baked into the original system? yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah okay. it
0: was. Despite
1: Serrano. Despite Serrano. Mm-hmm. Because, well, they <clears throat> they couldn't really squeeze um, fast enough uh, to... The, they were trying to raise the base of the uh, lower wealth districts and they were trying to slow down the uh, income growth of the higher wealth I districts see. to bring them all into more or less parity. As a practical matter, they just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they... Uh, they couldn't, you, you couldn't just cut everybody off and give them equal funding because the, um, uh, there were lots of districts that were spending so much on their teachers and their salary schedules and all that it would have thrown them into complete fiscal chaos. Mm, okay. Okay.
0: That's interesting. I, that's something I never understood about how, what happened after Serrano. Um, okay. So, so we, we went to this system of revenue limits, the base amount that you're entitled to by state. Um, is there another kind of district?
1: Oh, are, are you uh, fishing for a comment about basic? Aid? I am. Um, well, I am. yes. The, there are uh, districts that take in so much in, in taxes that, regardless of what system comes down the pike from the legislature or the courts or anyone else, they're going to get more than whatever formula enti- uh, entitles them to. So. The Constitution, California Constitution, which says a lot about education and really values education, though you wouldn't know it from the way we treat it financially, (laughs) um, the California Constitution guarantees a basic amount of $120 per pupil Mm -hmm. uh, to a district, or if it's a very small district, at least a total of $2,400 a year. And that's called basic aid. So a basic aid district is a district that gets nothing but that puny amount from the state, and the state has to cough that up because the Constitution requires it. Mm -hmm. But everything else comes from their local taxes. Mm -hmm. And uh, districts sometimes fall in and out of that status depending on how their assessed property valuation is going. So uh, it's a pain in the neck for, for some districts. It's a great gravy train for a lot of districts. You know, if you have a huge industrial base or oil wells or lots of very, very rich people in, mm-hmm. in fancy homes. Um, you just are rolling in dough.
0: So we're going to get to what, how all of this changed in 2013, but I want to make sure listeners understand that prior to 2013, we had a system where you have the basic aid districts like Maddie just described who get to keep all of their local property tax. Everybody else collected whatever local property tax they had, And then the state backfilled to get them to that revenue limit.
1: Well, uh, yes, but the backfilling, um, that whole process was sort of thrown into chaos Mm -hmm. um, after the the legislature went back to the drawing board when the the court said you're not equalizing fast enough. Mm -hmm. So in uh, 1976, they produced um, uh, AB-65. It was built on the formulas in that palimpsestic way. It was built on the formulas of the previous uh, revenue limit system, but it equalized faster. It was it was complex, but it was de- designed to achieve real equalization. It had some muscle in it. It was I, I remember it. It was the first school statute I had to read in depth, and it was really very well written. So it was about to take effect uh, on July 1st, 1978, but on June 6th, 1978, the voters went and passed Proposition 13, and it threw everything into complete and total chaos. And this and, is the moment Karen
0: was talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So what did Prop 13 do?
1: Well, it nullified AB 65 uh, because you, you couldn't fund it with that formula. The you could no longer fund any kind of school statutes that were in existence. It limited property tax rates to assessed, to 1% of assessed valuation, and all local agencies had to survive on this this very much lowered income. It uh, limited y- yearly tax increases, and right off the bat, it slashed property taxes by an average of 60%. I mean, yeah. It was just dramatic. And I, Karen mentioned, you know, the, the programs that went away. I, we did teacher layoffs. We did school closures. It was, um, it was an intense time being yeah. a student.
2: So I can imagine being a school employee, a teacher, an administrator, school oh. board member. Those were tough times. It My was- typing teacher... Um, was the union president oh, at the time, man. and he would take typing class time to discuss how <laughs> dramatic and impactful Proposition yeah. 13 was on all of them. Right, right. Yeah.
1: Well, that's good. You were getting the education that led you here, right? First hand. Yes, exactly. Yes, wonderful. Uh, so, so, Karen... Uh, let, let me
0: just, oh, sure. let me just add
1: that all of the funding statutes that came in the wake of Prop 13, everything we've had to do to cope with that ever since, mm-hmm. were built on the wreckage of AB65, which had been built on SB90 and AB1267. So you wonder why you don't want to read the Ed Code, because it's practically impossible to read.
0: Yeah, it's like reading uh, like some, the Talmud or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Worse. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so Karen, so with the lens of Prop 13 to now, how does Prop 13 still affect what we do at the bargaining table?
2: Well, Prop 13 still has a limiting impact on how much revenue the state generates, which can then be in turn provided to school districts Mm -hmm. and community colleges throughout the state. Um, There was another proposition that tried to um, address funding in the state so that when you look at the whole of the state budget, Proposition 98 Mm -hmm. was designed to make sure that the state allocates at least a minimum amount of state revenues to public schools and and some charter schools and and, um, county offices of education and community college districts. What that proposition did was say all the state revenues should be looked at and at least 40% of those state revenues should be pushed back to schools. And that was intended to be a minimum. How Prop 13 interacts with Proposition 98 is it reduces the value of that pot that ends up getting distributed. So it still has reverberations in 2018 going into 19. It's still a big impact. Mm-hmm. And that Proposition 98 was trying to make sure that the that the state protects its students in terms of funding and doesn't try to allocate its resources, its state-generated revenues in other ways to other services mm-hmm. other than public education. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Okay, so I want to jump now to... Today's moment to 2013, when um, following the budget crisis, um, Governor Jerry Brown decided came forward with a whole new funding formula, and um, which we call LCFF. Karen, can
2: you talk about what LCFF was? Did sure. So in California, we have at least right now, um, December 2018, we have about 6.2 million public school students in the state. And um, each of those students has a different life experience. Some are more, more so socioeconomically advantaged. Others are are living in poverty. Some are English language learners. Um, I was surprised to, st- to see how high the statistics are in terms of children living in poverty. Mm. Um, it's really a, a, a huge proportion of our students. And so, what Governor Brown was trying to do is create a finance model that had an equity component. And the equity concept is that students that are English language learners, who are participating in foster youth programs, who are homeless, who are living in poverty, those students live in communities um, and have less opportunities than students that are living in more affluent communities. The example of Beverly Hills was a good example from earlier today. And that equity doesn't mean the same dollar value per student. Equity means providing students with the opportunities to achieve at the same levels Mm -hmm. as their counterparts that are more economically advantaged. Mm. And so that was sort of the principle behind the local control funding formula. The the other principle behind it was that local school districts understand and um, support their students uniquely. And so there should be less ties placed on how local school districts receive state funding. So um, combination of ensuring that the students with the greatest need receive additional state funds, allowing the local school districts to have more flexibility and control over the funds they do receive, and then adding a requirement called a local control accountability plan requirement, which ensures that parents teachers, principals, students, um, communities of English language learner families all have a say, bargaining unions, um, all have a say in how those programs will be designed to ensure that the value of this LCFF, this additional money provided for students with the greatest need, is allocated in such a way that Um, students actually have greater opportunities to be successful, to graduate, to perform higher um, on testing for math and and other things. So we've gone from a concept of equality
0: in funding to one of equity.
2: Right. Right. So equal doesn't mean equitable under LCFF. So every student in the state is going to be eligible, every public school student in the state is going to be eligible for what's called a base grant. Okay. And that's a dollar value that is provided to to every school district for every student. And it is dependent on the grade level of the student. So, for example, if you are in grades K through 3, if you're a district that serves students in kindergarten through third grade, in 2018-19, you'll receive $8,235 dollars. But if you are a a high school student in 2018-19, you'll receive $9,269. So depending on your grade level, you're going to get a different value. And that different value, those numbers I just referenced, are are the base grant. So that's what everybody receives. It's more similar to what Maddie was talking about, which is the revenue limit dollars, Mm -hmm. where you got the same amount. Mm -hmm. Um, depending on your district, depending on where you were in 1972 and Mm -hmm. 1978, um, but it was a set amount per child. What LCFF did was over and above that base grant, it came up with a formula to allocate additional resources.
0: Okay, so before I go into additional resources, I just have one question, which is do we we see variations in funding between different districts anymore or did LCFF take care of that sort of variation in revenue limit problem
2: that we had in the past?
0: There's still variation,
2: mm-hmm. um, but we've made progress in terms of how we are differentiating. Okay. So let me just start with the basic aid districts first and sort of set that group of districts aside. There are fewer of them of the approximately 1,000 districts. It's probably around 10% of districts fall into that category. And they still or keep or their local property taxes, they keep their local right pro- the way they used to. Yeah. Right. Okay. They still have local control accountability plans mm-hmm. and do other things, but for the most part, those communities are are different from what we're talking about now. Okay. So they have a different um, way of looking at these things. So for the rest of the districts in the state, um, they all receive this base grant, and that base grant differs on the student grade levels that they serve. So the base is, is equalized. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where the difference occurs is for districts that have Populations of English language learners, children in poverty, homeless, and foster youth. So, if you have a greater percentage of students with greater needs, you're going to receive greater funds from the state. Mm-hmm. And there are formulas for each of those.
0: Okay. So, the, so does that mean they're winners and losers from
2: LCFF? Well, I think it depends on your perspective. Uh-huh. So, if you're in an affluent. Um, school district with very few students living in poverty, very few English language learners, and very few homeless foster youth, you may perceive yourself as a loser in the LCFF model because you may receive less of what's called supplemental or concentration Mm
1: -hmm. funds
2: from the state. Both of those two types of funds, supplemental and concentration, are additional funds that districts receive when they have populations that have more need. And so if you're a more affluent community that have students of less need, you may look at that just from a dollar perspective and say under the LCFF LCFF model we're getting less.
1: It's probable in that affluent community that the parents have gotten together a long time ago and started a foundation to support education. That happens so often now. That's true. And mm-hmm. so in they keep themselves from being losers in that game
2: right and they have other options too so they have foundations so parents are going to um, have more resources have more time possibly to contribute have more financial resources to contribute and possibly the district might engage in other um, taxing activities at the local level which would also provide more resources. So I'm not a big fan of the winning and losing concept um, because the whole idea behind it is students um, are provided what they need. Now, that's a a really big thing for me to say, Mm -hmm. but that's the intent behind the legislation. However, that isn't what's yet been accomplished because in the state of California, we're one of the lowest... Um, contributors towards public education. Mm-hmm. If you look at all of us on a per capita yeah. basis in terms of what we generate um, in terms of taxes, both the property taxes but also the income taxes mm-hmm. in California. We really do fall, depending on what study you look at, at least in the bottom 50 states. So is that the legacy of Prop 13 still? I think it is. Yeah. I really think it is. When you take out um, uh, ...large portion of our tax base, which was done with Prop 13, um, and you rely more on income tax revenue and and less on uh, property tax revenue for the state, it's going to result in less income. But that's only part of the equation, right? It's not, we are one of the biggest...
1: We're the fifth largest economy in the world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and we, we should do we, better. That's exactly right. We should yeah. do better by our children. Well, yeah. there's uh, an initiative that's been qualified with with well over the required number of signatures for the 2020 ballot. And there's a broad coalition of, of uh, educational and uh, you know, other sorts of organizations supporting it. And it would create the split role that people have talked about for a long time, uh, for Prop 13 where homeowners would continue to be protected from the increases in property taxes, but commercial property would be treated differently. And a lot of people think that that would be a much more equitable way of taxing. And it would really, I've read the the ballot measure provisions and they project that it would bring in lots and lots of money, which the state really needs. Yeah, interesting. So
0: Karen, I know we were talking at the outset before we started recording about how it all affects collective bargaining. Can you can you kind of talk about the role of LCFF and what, what you do day to
2: day? Sure. So, um, in terms of collective bargaining, it's had a lot of impacts, so prior to LCFF in 2013, Uh, The district would await the governor's proposed budget in January and it would find out what the cost of living adjustment would be that their particular district would receive. And they would start their negotiations based on that value. Basic aid districts, a little bit different. They would be awaiting the uh, property tax um, information that they would receive from the county assessor's office and they would track that and they would try to determine whether or not property tax. Revenues were going up or down within their community and and try to budget that way. But for the uh, lion's share of districts, they were really focused on what is the net new cost of living adjustment that the district will receive and how will that adjustment be allocated? How will that small percentage. In the 70s and early 80s, we were looking at 7% and 8%. And once in a great while, I think 2001, we had close to a 10%. But um, nowadays, we're looking at the LCFF values and increased revenues to schools um, in a very unique way. So let me tell you just some of the things that are happening in that area. So first, we're looking at LCFF. And we have our uh, bargaining partner stakeholders who are involved in developing these local control accountability plans so they all have say in how the district is spending its supplemental and concentration um, money meaning the money that is supposed to be targeted for students with special needs and they have different perspectives possibly than parents or students or school board members they may see that it may be more valuable from their perspective to have lower class sizes for students who are um, more disadvantaged to achieve better, or they may see that additional paraeducator support or counseling support, um, psychological services, mental health services might be more valuable. They may just have a different perspective in terms of how that concentration supplemental funding should be allocated. So that's one component. Um, And then you add the fact that LCFF had important goals, but set low targets. What do I mean by that? So Mm -hmm. important goals is that it was seeking to provide additional resources to students who had less resources. So that's an important goal. But it targeted for base grants and supplemental and concentration values a time when we were experiencing a recession. So we were simply trying to get back to 2007, 2008, Funding levels. Hmm. So that was the goal of fully funding LCFF in California Mm -hmm. at the time it was adopted in 2013. It wasn't to exceed what was invested in public schools at the time when it was invested a little bit more. Interesting. Okay. Um, It really was to just get us back to pre-recession levels, which Mm -hmm. was 2007-2008. And that was achieved in 2018-19, which was a little sooner Mm -hmm. than what was anticipated a few years earlier. So we are currently what people will describe as fully funded um, LCF in Mm -hmm. 2018-19. And that really just gets us back to funding at 2007-2008 levels. And I know there's a lot of discussion at the legislative level of really increasing our goals mm-hmm. and having those goals not set at, you know, recessionary times, but to have those goals based on what will accomplish our um, interest for our students, which is having them all achieve at high levels.
1: Interesting. As long as um, our tax revenues are really dependent on the health of the economy, it's very difficult to plan without a really sensible system of taxation. Um, Right. We're going to, it'll be the same old story, I think.
2: Unfortunately, I have to agree. And (laughs) um, some of the other factors that are contributing to the whole school finance and collective bargaining issues that some school districts are beginning to experience this year and will continue to experience going forward without some significant changes is in addition to LCFF goals being Mm 2007-2008, on top of that, you have some pension um, issues that the state is experiencing. So what happened was the California um, PERS system, which provides retirement pension benefits to um, non-credentialed district employees, and CalSTRS, which provides retirement benefits for credentialed employees, teachers, counselors, school nurses, um, principals, those two organizations, um, pension groups, passed on the increased cost of pensions to school districts over the last several years. So when we're in negotiations, we look at a number of factors. So if there's any new revenue that comes in, what we first have to do is identify what does that new re- revenue have to go toward. And the very first thing it has to go towards is our mandated costs for pensions. Mm. And that has increased exponentially um, over the last few years and um, is expected to continue to go up. So in 2018, the Calsters contribution that employers must provide um, to Calsters for teachers, has gone up uh, 1.85%. And it has been going up steadily since 2013, approximately 1.85% per year. Mm-hmm. So let's say that 80% of a school district's budget is for salaries, right? Because that's what school districts do. They provide a service to students. So if you're increasing your salary costs by 1.85%, And you get a 2.7% increase or a 3.1% increase in terms of your total revenue. That doesn't give you very much to do anything with. It doesn't take care of normal step and column movement. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take care of health benefits that increase for many districts every year. It doesn't take care of utility costs going up keeping the lights on, paying for garbage, water, Mm -hmm. all those things Mm -hmm. that are important. Um, It doesn't pay for a lot of things.
1: Well, and the pension costs are booked as salary, but the teachers don't see a salary increase. Right. And they're understandably upset. Well, not only that, but in addition to employers having to pick
2: up this additional increase, employees are having to pick up additional increases, both on the classified non-teaching side and the teaching side so both the employer the school district is picking up these increased costs the employees are picking up increased costs and there's really very little of anything left to provide in terms of increases so we would all hope at least to maintain our prior year's salary and benefits oh right gosh. just maintaining yeah. is difficult yeah right to right. keep up with um, the cost of inflation There's very little left for districts to absorb the cost of inflation because all of this is being directed either by previously negotiated collective bargaining agreements for step and column and health benefits or directly by the state in terms of the state legislature saying you now have to pick up all of these increased pension costs. And it's,
1: these numbers are huge. So, well, collective bargaining in the public sector modeled on collective bargaining and in the private sector. But there's a big difference. You know, we school districts can't raise prices. School districts can't go out of business. Uh, it's, um, the, there's a flaw just in that basic model, which is unfair both to the employees and to the kids and to the districts themselves.
2: Absolutely. And if they're threatened to go out of business, if their budget is such... And their resources and expenditures are such that they don't have enough money to meet their obligations. AB-1200. AB-1200. <laughs> yeah, let's talk that, about AB-1200. Yeah, yeah. that's the law that basically says you're not supposed to go bankrupt, school districts, because mm-hmm. we don't want to absorb all of the costs of you going bankrupt. So we're going to put into place these warning signals and these uh, monitors to ensure that you don't. So, yes. um that's a whole conversation on budget that we can talk about as right, well. Right,
0: and, I think, and I'd like to do that in future conversations, talk about the budget and how that impacts all the things we're talking about here. I think that would be great. Sure. Um, so I have a couple of big picture questions. Um, one thing, based on where we just were talking about, what's the solution to all the problems Karen was just talking about in terms of pension increases? Is it just more money? If, we, if the state were, able, were to, to contribute more revenue to, to schools, would, would that fix the problem, or do we have fundamental pension structure issues?
2: That's the Sophie's Choice question. Mm. That's the hardest question. Um, I think that right now in California, it's, it's a challenge because school funding is based on state revenue. State revenue is based on taxation. Um, and... The resources that aren't going to schools are going to other needed services. So the the choice there is, are you going to contribute less for law enforcement, for the UC system, for firefighters, all of the things that we all need and rely upon. Um, And so it really is a difficult choice. But going back to what Maddie was mentioning earlier with a proposition that just um, received enough signatures yeah, to get on the ballot, the
1: split role.
2: I, you know, there are entities, non individuals like businesses, that may have benefited from being in California. That could provide greater resources to help us um, improve their future workforce and um, support the reason they're in California, which is a great
1: place There's to an live. There's an enormous amount of wealth in our state economy, and we surely should be able to figure out how to tap into that and do right by the children. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I have kind of a big-picture question,
0: which, is, which I think you've already both just started to talk about, which is why should this matter to, to all Californians, You know, even folks who don't have kids in school or teach in the
1: schools? Well, I will go back to the California Constitution because they wrote into it, echoing the Founding Fathers, echoing Washington's Farewell Address and Thomas Jefferson's work with the Virginia legislature, a general diffusion of knowledge and intelligence being essential to the preservation of the rights and liberties of the people. And they go on to talk about creating the system of common schools. It is essential to the preservation of the rights and liberties of the people. It's just that simple. We need educated people, not only for jobs and for the economy, we need educated people to make educated choices so we can govern ourselves. Hear, hear.
2: I agree 100%. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, So, and then... the thing that I find most fascinating about this whole discussion is the search for equality and equity. Are we any closer than we were in, in 1968
1: with Serrano? <laughs> I'm thinking of Zeno's paradox. We're halfway there, probably, mm-hmm. and we'll always be halfway there. Interesting. And just from the
2: trenches, what I have on a positive, what mm-hmm. I have seen is because our labor partners and our communities are now more involved at looking at the needs of students who are disadvantaged or who are learning English or or in other circumstances. Because people are actually focused on that, I think there's hope there that we will improve education overall for the state of California Mm -hmm. kids.
1: Yeah. There's no one big fix. It's a constant process because when When one thing is accomplished, another thing changes. And so there's never an end in sight, but we have to keep trying. This has been great. Um,
0: I really enjoyed hearing all of this and thinking about all these issues I hope others will too and like I said I hope we can continue this conversation over financial issues on future podcasts so thank you both so much thank oh, you Devin you're welcome yeah um, okay so thank you everyone for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today we encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmithcom slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today also make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single episode thank mm-hmm. you If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice we recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.